I'd like to end uh, my series of talks tonight by talking about four faces of compassion. Mary, Kuan Yin, Tara, and Tinkerbell. And you can say in the um, Noble Eightfold Path, compassion falls under uh, skillful or wise intention, one of the three uh, skillful intentions, often called non-cruelty. But on the positive side, we say compassion. And obviously very related, as I spoke the other day, to the precepts, to skillful action, wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. And basically, you could say, entwined in our whole practice. It's said that uh, Buddhism has two wings, wisdom and compassion, and that we need both wings to fly. I've noticed that we talk a lot uh, about the depth and breadth and many angles of wisdom, but I wonder how much we explore the depths of compassion with the same um, enthusiasm. I know that uh, in the past I've just assumed that I know what compassion is. Okay, compassion, that's when you care about somebody suffering. But I've found over the years that the more I explore it, um, the deeper I understand it, and the more that I see it has angles and um, depth and breadth that I had not suspected before. So I want to tonight to give uh, compassion the full attention exploration that it deserves. So recently in my exploration of compassion, I found that I was looking at it from four different angles and that those angles could be um, symbolized through four archetypes the archetype of Mary, mother of Jesus, the archetype of Tara, who is um, one of the uh, Tibetan bodhisattvas or um, devas uh, that uh, represent compassion. I'm Kuan Yin, who most of you have heard of in some form, and Tinkerbell. So I'm going to talk about these four faces of compassion through these four archetypes. I want to point out that my view um, of these archetypes is very subjective, that it might not match up exactly to somebody else's view or the traditional view. Like, for example, when I've given this talk a couple times recently, I found out a little bit more about Tinkerbell um, that didn't actually jive with the way that I <laughs> was looking at Tinkerbell. So, um, just to just to make that clear, and um, you know, you may connect with different ones of these archetypes, or, or perhaps you have your own. The symbol doesn't matter so much as how we respond to it and what it brings forth within ourselves. So for me, these archetypes help me to connect with these facets of compassion within myself. They help me to develop and strengthen these different facets of compassion. 
And through their um, symbolic representation, they helped me to actually get a deeper feel for compassion. Because we're not so interested in compassion as some intellectual understanding. We're actually interested in what it feels like and what it feels like um, down to the cellular level throughout our being, throughout our physical body, our emotional body, our energetic body, mind, heart, body. And so we can practice actually receiving these qualities so that we can know them within ourselves and so that we can know the potential of our own heart for compassion. You could say so that we know that we can also be Kuan Yin, we can also be Tara, and we can also be Mary. We can manifest these qualities in the world. And through our exploration of these different facets of compassion, we familiarize ourselves deeply with these qualities, and we also find where we hit um, limitations to being able to let it in or embody it, perhaps conditioned beliefs or fear. So we hit these uh, limitations or these edges, or as we talked about the other week, the ice mountains in the heart and the mind. But as we keep returning, we find that we're, that we're increasingly able to um, feel the truth of compassion, and increasing, it becomes increasingly easier to call forth this quality and to manifest it in the world. So in some ways this is an end-of-the-month talk because it has a little bit of flavor. I know you're not all leaving, <laughs> but it has a little bit of a flavor of turning um, towards the world. So, let's begin our journey. Let's start from the perspective of Mary. What does Mary mean um, when we're uh, developing compassion? So for me, Mary is the uh, warmth of compassion. Sometimes described like the warmth of a mother for a child. I've heard that the Buddha used the image of a mother calf, a mother cow with her calf. So there's a sense of softness and kindness, taking care of. I have a statue of Mary in my garden. She has finally come out of the snow. (laughs) And uh, she has a a gesture like this. Her hands are open and... um, her arms are wide, and to me there's, there's that sense of um, acceptance or unconditional, universal acceptance in that gesture. So there's this warmth combined with unconditional acceptance. Sometimes I think of this flavor of compassion like honey. Sometimes I even practice receiving it like honey poured, warm honey poured 
all over my being, seeing if it can be absorbed down to the level of the cells, that kind of warmth. Can we let in this kind of warmth? This is part of the exploration of compassion. Can we let in this kind of warmth, not only as an idea, but as a lived, embodied experience? There's a a Zen priest named Zenju Earthland Manuel, and she wrote a book called The Way of Tenderness. She says... The way of tenderness is acknowledgement, acknowledging and honoring all life and all that is in the world fully with heart and body. This acknowledgement is wordless and expressed in a deeply felt nod to everything and to everyone, an inner bow to life, so to speak. It is a response beyond the mind, but of the body. The way of tenderness is an intangible elixir for the clogged arteries in the heart of our world. That feels like the merry expression of compassion. So we let this warmth melt our hard edges, melt those barriers in the heart and mind, the edges of Anger, fear, craving. Smoothing out the rough edges of the heart. The ice mountains. How do we access that warmth and let it in? That's part of the exploration of compassion. And my question is, can we even bear to go deeply into our meditation practice, to go deeply into the personal truth of being human and the suffering of being human? Can we be open to the breadth and depth of suffering, not only within ourselves, but within our world, without this warmth? This warmth makes it possible to trust. Trust our practice, trust the Dharma, trust life. And that trust is what makes it possible to be open. So with the warmth of Mary, the warmth of compassion and the symbol of Mary, we start to let the hard edges of the heart and the mind soften, melt. Hmm, what do we hit when this happens? Perhaps we hit some ambivalence. The heart's like, I'm not so sure that I want to soften. Because in that softening, we also come in touch with our deep vulnerability in this world. The barriers protect us from, hmm, they give the illusion of protecting us from the vulnerability. 
We like that. So there may be this dance of the heart that opens because we like that too. <laughs> we like the, the, the connection, right? The openness, the, the, the spaciousness of the open heart. And then yet there's the ambivalence and the wishing for the security and the apparent invulnerability of the harder heart. So maybe perhaps what we do is we acclimate to the openness. We give the heart time to become accustomed to being vulnerable. Sometimes I, I feel that we have to negotiate with the heart. <laughs> I'm not sure if I mentioned this the other night, but that sometimes I talk to the hardness. I'm like... Let's say the heart feels hard. So I'll be like, heart, what do you think? Shall we open here? (laughs) And the hardness will say, why would I want to do that? (laughs) And I'll say to the hardness, well, let's think about this. Is it satisfying to be hard? Well, it is a lot of work. (laughs) And it is kind of lonely. And the heart says, well, you have a point there. The way of tenderness and the way of compassion is is to have compassion also for the hardness in the heart. Not to force it, but to join with it. See how we can work it out. Sometimes, when exploring the warmth of compassion within ourselves, we'll come up uh, against the hardness of unworthiness or the ambivalence of unworthiness. We're not sure that we're worthy of such compassion. We may remember the ways that we have acted unskillfully. The times that we have been unkind. Or we may see the, the dark secrets in our own heart, the malice, and think, I'm not worthy. And we soften into that. We let the warm honey soak right into that. I think that this warmth of Mary includes what I call mercy, a word we don't use a lot in Buddhism. This kind of deep mercy that's a a kind of unconditional forgiveness. a full embracing of our humanity. A full understanding of the trial and error nature of this human life. 
mercy. Learning to feel and accept this mercy deeply within. Having the the extra benefit, you could say, of being able then to extend it to others. There's a story that I think so well expresses this kind of mercy quality. It comes from a book called Tattoos on the Heart by, um, I believe he's Catholic, maybe Jesuit, but I think Catholic priest, Gregory Boyle, who, um, I may have read one of his stories here another night. He uh, works in Los Angeles with gang members and ex-gang members apparently very well-loved, and a man of tremendous compassion, huge heart. So he tells of a time when he was asked to give a Mass, and he was in South America, and uh, I think Bolivia, and he was asked to give a Mass um, up in the mountain in a small town where they hadn't had a priest in a long time. They asked him to come. And he felt like afterwards that he had just butchered this this mass, that it was just, he'd been a complete failure. And he felt very humiliated and very, um, uh, very hard on himself. And even at some point, he wound up talking to somebody, and all his friends had gone ahead, and he was going to have to walk down the mountain by himself. So he says, I am alone at the top of this mountain, stuck not only without a ride, but in stullifying humiliation. I am convinced that a worse priest has never visited this place or walked upon this earth. With my backpack snug on my shoulder and spirit deflated, I begin to make the long walk down the mountain and back to town. But before I leave the makeshift makeshift soccer field that had been our cathedral, an old Quechua campesino, seemingly out of nowhere, makes his way to me. He appears ancient, but I suspect his body has been weathered by work and the burden of an Indian's life. As he nears me, I see he is wearing tethered wool pants with a white button shirt, greatly frayed at the collar. He has a rope for a belt. His suit coat is coarse and worn. He's wearing huiraches, and his feet are caked with Bolivian mud. Any place on a human face can have wrinkles and creases, he has them. He is at least a foot shorter than I am, and he stands right in front of me and says, Tatai. This is Quechua for Padrecito, a word packed with cariño, affection, and a charming intimacy. He looks up at me with penetrating, weary eyes and says, Tatai, gracias por haber venido. Thanks for coming. I think of something to say, but nothing comes to me, which is just as well. Because before I can speak, the old campesino reaches into the pockets of his suit coat and retrieves two fistfuls of multicolored rose petals. He's on the tip of his toes and gestures that I might assist with the inclination of my head. And so he drops the petals over my head, and I'm without words. He digs into his pockets again and manages two more fistfuls of petals. He does this again and again, and the store of red, pink, and yellow rose petals seems infinite. I just stand there and let him do this, staring at my own huraches, now moistened with my tears, covered with rose petals. 
Finally, he takes his leave, and I'm left there alone with only the bright aroma of roses. For all the many times I would return to Tirani and see the same villagers over and over, I never saw this old campesino again. Rose petals. Mercy. The warmth of Mary. Sometimes we may have an unconscious belief that compassion is a bit wimpy. And when we talk about warmth and um, softness, uh, perhaps that unconscious belief can sneak in a little bit. So we will balance this with talking about um, the power of compassion. And this, I will use the symbol of Tara, who shines out compassion in a steady stream from the heart. And the power of it spreads wide and is stronger than any obstacle. So we can understand compassion as a powerful and empowered state of mind that can meet any suffering and not be crushed by it. We can feel this energetically ourselves. How do we call forth that power within our own heart? It is possible for all of us. It's our birthright. When I was thinking the other day about the power of Tara, I had a flashback to this image that went around the internet a number of months ago. Perhaps some of you will recognize it. It's from a Black Lives Matter demonstration in Baton Rouge. And there's a picture of a young African-American woman. She's standing in in a very dignified and powerful pose. She has on this long flowing skirt and there's these riot police around her. They look like they're coming towards her, but they can't touch her. There's this sense of of this strong um, force field around her. You can see that she's very um, rooted and that her power comes from somewhere very deep within her. And my sense is that, 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 that power is compassion. That power that at times has a quality of fierceness to it or can have a quality of fierceness to it. A fierce compassion. Fierce dignity, perhaps. Without this power of compassion, we can easily fall into what are known as the near neighbors of compassion or our easily conditioned responses when we meet suffering. 
are responses of pity or despair or aversion, forms of collapse in the face of suffering. This collapse may have the sense somewhere of, I can't deal with this reality. But when compassion is connected with the power of the heart, and we can feel this strength and this power, there's resiliency there. We can deal with this. So we call forth that strength and that fierceness of heart. I think that we are stronger than we sometimes assume. That we can hold more than we sometimes assume. Fear pulls us back from exploring those edges. Tara, the power of Tara, can give us the courage to explore those edges. I was thinking recently about cynicism as a form of collapse. When we are, when we meet suffering, perhaps over a long period of time, or we meet suffering under conditions where we feel like we don't have power, cynicism can be the response of the heart and the mind. But I was exploring it in myself, among other things, and, if, and, and I see that cynicism is a collapse of the heart. What happens? It's a hardness of the heart. We're back to that protection, right? What happens if we bring kindness to the cynicism, relax and explore those edges, that hardness? What we often find underneath is a heart that cares very deeply and feels vulnerable. is a possible option instead of collapse, instead of cynicism. I have a partner who sometimes, uh, he's, he's probably more cynical than I am. And a number of years ago, I, I was trying to be engaged less in conversations um, tending towards cynicism. And um, he wanted me to engage, so I made a deal with him. I told him we could have five-minute cynicism fests. And for five minutes, (laughs) we could be as cynical as we wanted to be, and then we were going to let it go. (laughs) It worked pretty well. (laughs) We don't do it so much anymore. We can have... um, We can have so much kindness towards all those places in our hearts that are hard, including cynicism. So we have the warmth of Mary, the the softening of the heart, 
the warmth like honey, unconditional acceptance, unconditional embracing of suffering. And then we have Tara, the power and strength of a heart. that can hold and is not crushed by suffering. And then we come to Kuan Yin, the third face of compassion. Kuan Yin is recognizable to many of us as a goddess figure with many arms and hands. She has different manifestations, but one of them she has many arms and hands. And um, it said that she has so many arms and hands because she wants to help. And sometimes she's shown as seated with one knee up, ready to spring into action to alleviate suffering. So this third manifestation of compassion is action. Part of the power of compassion is the wish and the action to alleviate suffering. Thich Nhat Hanh says, compassion is a verb. I read of a sign in a nurse's station. Sympathy sees and says, I'm sorry. Compassion feels and whispers, I'll help. So compassion motivates us to act. It's more than a warm feeling. It's a call to respond. Without action, compassion can be disempowering. Things continue as they have been. When we respond, even if our actions don't necessarily have the result that we hoped for, we feel the power of the response. So action also counteracts our tendency to crumble. beauty of compassionate action is that it takes us outside of ourselves, outside of our small world, our contracted world. We feel the relief of the contraction around our own needs and wants. I actually feel it very physically in my upper back. There's a letting go of contraction and a great spaciousness when the heart is truly feeling compassionate. It relieves us of the claustrophobia of our own self-absorption. One Zen master was asked by one of his students, Is Kuan Yin real? And he answered, To see her, all you have to do is perform a selfless deed. 
here's another story from Tattoos on the Heart. So Greg, Gregory Boylston um, started a number of uh, businesses in, in L.A. in order to give um, ex-gang members a way to earn a living. And so he has a kind of one rule is that if you're going to work at one of these businesses, you have to get along with everybody, and this may include your enemies. And um, so here he is uh, introducing a new employee. Clever, that's the name of the, of the new employee. Clever seems eager to begin at Homeboy Silkscreen, and at 22 years old, he has assured me he is ready to retire his jersey from the barrio. He moves with me easily through the factory, shaking hands cheerfully with those printing shirts or catching them as they spit through the conveyor belt dryer. Even enemies, he greets and looks them in the eye. Until he turns a corner and sees travieso, which means mischievous. Travieso, a 24-year-old from an enemy hood. In unison, they stare instantly at their feet. Some mumbling takes place and there's a great mutual shifting of body weight. They do not shake hands, I think. Hell, he's just finished shaking hands with all sorts of enemies. I discover sometime later that the hatred they hold for each other is profundo. Not only is this a neighborhood pedo, this is also personal. Some delito has transpired between them and the breach is beyond repair. I can sense this much in the moment even before the details get filled in later. Their eyes are still epoxied to their Nike Cortezes. Look, I tell them, if you can't hang working together, please let me know, because I got a grip of homies who would love to have this holly. They say nothing, so that's that. Six months later, Travieso finds himself surrounded in an alley, greatly outnumbered by members of an enemy gang who beat him badly. I'm not going to read the description. You guys are on retreat, <laughs> but it's pretty bad. <laughs> So he says, the doctors, so they take him to the hospital where he's declared brain dead and left on life support. The doctors wait for 48 hours to secure a flat read and then they can officially declare him deceased. This allows time for relatives to journey to Los Angeles. I am speaking at St. Louis University and fly home. I have seen a great deal of horrifying things in my lifetime. Nothing, however, compares to the sight of this kid a wonderfully gently-souled kid. It is breathtaking. I can barely take my eyes, keep my eyes trained on him as I smear sacred oil on his forehead and we say goodbye in the pull of a plug. In those first 24 hours after his death, I am in my office late at night and the phone rings. It's clever. Hey, he begins awkwardly. That's messed up about what happened to Trieso. Yeah, it is, I say to him, brought back to this hollow area of my soul, which this sadness has carved. Is there anything I can do, Clever asks, with highly odd energy? Can I give him my blood? This last offer sucks the breathable air out of the atmosphere of both of us. We can each feel the other tremble in silence. Clever takes the lead and punctuates the quiet with great resolve and unprotected tears. He was not my enemy. 
He was my friend. We, we worked together. Kuan Yin. Sometimes people ask me, frequently actually these, these days, people ask me, how can I respond? How can I take action in today's world? It's so overwhelming. There's so many places that need help. There's so many, there's so much suffering that we contact so much of the time. Perhaps there's not one answer to that question. My answer, however, is choose one thing that you feel compa- that you feel passionate about and compassionate about and do that. Howard Thurman says, "Don't ask what the world needs. Ask yourself what you ask, ask yourself what makes you come alive and do that." because what the world needs is people who have come alive. I have two passions. One is climate change work and the other is anti-racism work. And so for my climate change work, I have a very narrow place that I take action, and that is Opposing new fossil fuel infrastructure, specifically pipelines, gas pipelines, oil pipelines. And what I like about that is it's narrow enough that it's, that it's doable. I belong to an affinity group that's part of a, of a, there's a number of groups that are part of a larger organization called the Sugar Shack Alliance. <laughs> and um, so each group meets and gets to know each other. And then um, we're a group uh, that does um, civil disobedience together. So with people doing different, some people getting arrested, some people supporting, um, sometimes just rallying. And we have a great time. This group is in my town. I now know many more people in my town than I knew before. I think it's important somehow to have fun together too. Perhaps that gets more into Tinkerbell, which I'll get to soon. (laughs) One of the best things we did So it all started because the pipeline was going through our town. They were building a pipeline through our town. Um, And they had it all mapped out and surveyed. They knew where it was going to go. So some of the people in our affinity group, actually, the pipeline was going through their backyard. (laughs) And uh, so we took the maps, and and people who had the the, the pipeline going right through their backyard um, we decided to build a, a replica of a Henry David Thoreau's cabin 
right in the pathway of the pipeline. So we um, had the plans to build a cabin, and then the building inspector said, that cabin's small, you don't need a permit. However, if you get a permit to put it up, you need a permit to take it down. (laughs) So we built the cabin (laughs) right in the pathway of the pipeline. And then other people started to make plans to build cabins. And it was fun. It was great fun. Um, we won that one. They, they did not build the pipeline. And then most of us felt like we wanted to continue to help others. It wasn't just not in our backyard, but we lost the second fight recently. That one was built. We'll see what's next. I know that responding in some way makes a huge difference for my heart. And like I said, it's fun. And then anti-racism work. On one side, I tried to educate myself about what it is to be a white person in this culture, this society. About ways that I can be aware of the impact of my actions. Trying my best to be open to feedback and humble in this area. I also am one of the teachers in the current IMS teacher training program, which by design, three quarters of the participants are people of color. So three quarters of the teachers that we are training to be the next generation of teachers here are people of color. Again, it's doable, and we have a great time. Kuan Yin, the response of the heart in action, where we see suffering. Last but not least, we have Tinkerbell. Now, first of all, I'll make it clear that I'm not thinking of Tinkerbell from Disney. I do not know what Disney has done to her, but my guess is it's, <laughs> it's not what I mean. <laughs> if anything, I'm thinking of Tinkerbell back when I was about six years old and watching Peter Pan movies. But I have discovered that I have a selective memory of her from feedback people have Turns out she's kind of a controversial figure. My Tinkerbell is magical. That's how I think of her. So I wonder, I'm, I'm suspecting some of you wonder what Tinkerbell has to do with compassion. I will admit to having doubts to mentioning her. What about my credibility? I was talking to one of those teacher trainees in that program I mentioned. I was like, I don't know if I should mention Tinkerbell. 
And she's like, Rebecca, you have to mention Tinkerbell. I'm like, all right, okay. <laughs> I didn't go looking for her. I'll just make that clear. I was doing a, um, a practice um, from uh, Sultram Alione, a, a Western Tibetan nun, and it's called Feeding Your Demons, and what you do is you take the parts of yourself that um, are very wounded and you feed them, kind of like nectar, feed them, feed them. And then at the end, you ask for an ally. So when I asked for an ally, Tinkerbell showed up. And I was like, can I have somebody else? (laughs) Are you serious? I'm trying to do some serious spiritual work here. Um, It's their second choice. (laughs) But nope, that was the ally. So Tinkerbell, I got to know her a little bit. I've gotten to know her over time. And she's great. To me, Tinkerbell is spunky. And we need a lot of spunk to be truly compassionate in this world. I recently read a book about the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. It's a book of their meeting for the Dalai Lama's 80th birthday, and they spend a week together talking about joy. And the book is just soaked in spunk. These two men who are known as um, people with great hearts of compassion are full of spunk. And somehow, to me, it seems related. Tinkerbell also reminds me not to take myself too seriously. Not to take anything too seriously. If we get too serious, we get bogged down. Can fall into cynicism, despair. It's helpful to know that whatever challenge we face or whatever challenge we see, that there's a bigger picture too. When I start to get too serious, Tinkerbell touches me with the wand and says, Rebecca, lighten up. I feel like she also brings in magic, kind of the wide open space of possibility or the wisdom of emptiness. She can even be a bit sassy. She reminds us of mystery and magic and possibility in that we don't know how things will play out. So she points right towards the great unknown resting in the unknown, resting in possibility. It's amazing. We really don't know what's going to happen. Anything can happen. A recent manifestation of Tinkerbell to me is the recent actions of a group of middle school and high school students in Florida who who would have thought a couple, couple of months ago that these young people 
with leaders such as Emma Gonzalez, this proudly bisexual Cuban descent American young lady with a shaved head who's become a national hero. Others like her. Who would have thought a couple of months ago that these young people could lead a national movement for gun control and actually get some things to start happening? It's magic. It's... That's Tinkerbell. Anything can happen. So, Tinkerbell brings in that balance that's absolutely essential if we're not going to get overwhelmed and bogged down by the suffering that we encounter within ourselves and within this world. And she manifests a lightness and a spaciousness that by itself could be called frivolous or could be frivolous, superficial, ungrounded. But when combined with the other three phases of compassion, she is a balance and a strengthener of her own. The four faces of compassion. We have the warmth, the merry, the power of Tara, the action of Kuan Yin, and the lightness of Tinkerbell. And so having these archetypes at different times, we may need different aspects of compassion, and we can call on the different qualities or archetypes We may at times need the warmth of Mary to soften our hearts. So we call on her powerful honey of compassion. Or we may need the power of Tara to remind us of our own strength. So we call on her. Or we may need Kuan Yin to remind us to take action that we can help so that we don't get caught in apathy or cynicism. Or we may need Tinkerbell to touch us with magic, with lightness, and with spunk in the face of suffering. Mark Nepo, a modern mystic, said that with compassion our hearts become a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land. I love that, a soft and sturdy home in which real things can land, in which reality can land.
with this power of compassion, our hearts become warm, strong, responsive, and spacious. One time a reporter was interviewing the Dalai Lama and just as um, they were ending their time together he, he plucked up his courage to ask this question. What is the meaning of life? And the um, Dalai Lama roared with laughter and then he got really quiet and concentrated and he said, the meaning of life and it said that he um, touched his forehead to the reporter's forehead. You know how the Dalai Lama does that. He said, the meaning of life is to embody compassion. Anyone can discover this. When you discover this and live it, you discover your truest nature and share its joy. Let's sit for a minute. in whatever feels useful from the talk tonight, letting the rest go. Attending to the heart and any response. Over-energized, let it calm. Returning to the quiet. And we can end with the sharing of blessings together, chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.